Open your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, I invite you to look um, in a black Bible that's provided for you in front of your chair. Uh, we're right at the beginning of the Bible, page 47. Exodus chapter 4. We've seen so far that Exodus 3 presented us with the call of God to Moses to go down to Egypt to deliver my people. God stated what he desired to do through Moses, and he also gave Moses, in calling him, two promises. The promise of his presence and the promise of his sufficiency. That God would do what he said he would do, and he was going to use Moses to do it. Well, then we saw last week in chapter 4, that we are presented with the question. In our life, just as Moses was, a pre- was presented with the question in his life, that question is, will you believe? Will you, will I believe? We've been given the promises of God We've been given the call of God. Each of us have the call of God in our life. That we are his representatives, where he has placed us, in our elementary schools, in our high schools, in our colleges, in our workplaces. We're his representatives here in this church. Are we living a life that reflects what Jesus has done for us to those that are around us. That is the first call that God has given us, but then in our unique wiring, in the unique settings that God has placed us, He is calling us to reach out to others and to do things for Him that the next guy is not going to be able to do. So my network of people that I may rub shoulders with on a daily basis is more than likely different than yours. And God is going to use me to impact the people he has placed around me in my life just as he is going to use the people he's placed around you. He is going to choose to use you in your school. He is going to choose to use you in your workplace, in your neighborhood, because he's placed you there. Whereas he is not going to ask someone in another school, in another neighborhood, in another church, he's not going to use them to do what he's called you to do. But are we going to believe That God in His presence and His sufficiency in our lives is enough. Will you believe? And we talked about last week that, that the concept of faith, it's not difficult for us. We know what it means to have faith in God. To believe in the sufficiency of God. I mean, we, we know what, what, that, what that means conceptually in our minds. You have the illustration of you sit in a chair. I don't see anyone here whose legs are shaking because you're only halfway sitting in your chair. And, and, and man, you're getting a workout. 
All of you are completely placing 100% faith in the fact that your chair is holding you up. We understand what it means to place our faith in God. Where the complexity comes in is the action of faith in our life, of actually performing of the outworking of what we know to be true of God and actually with our entire person completely putting our confidence in Him. Completely trusting in Him. Completely leaning upon Him. That is what is difficult, is it not? Actually exercising the faith in our life. And this is exactly what God is calling Moses to do. And this is exactly what God is calling us to do. And the reason he calls us to do that is because we need in our Christian life, whether you are five or whether you are a hundred and five, we need constant reminders in our lives that our hope, our confidence can only come from God. He alone, as we, the key theme of this entire series, He alone can rescue and redeem. He alone is able to take the circumstances that you are currently in and to redeem them for His good and His glory. You can't do it yourself. You can't provide a better situation for yourself or provide that satisfaction that your soul is longing for. Only God can do that. Are you ready this morning to place your living daily faith in Him? We saw last week in answering this question, will you believe, will I believe, we saw last week that in order to put our belief, our daily dependence on God, in order to do that, we have to understand some hindrances to unbelief, or hindrances to belief. Some things that get in the way in our unbelief from having us sit completely to lean our full dependence upon God, going back to that chair analogy. And there was two things we looked at. In verses 1 to 9 of chapter 4, a huge hindrance to belief in our lives is a focus on others. God, in chapter 3, answers Moses' two objections when God says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. First, he says, well, who are you, God? What is your name? In other words, what is your character? Reveal yourself to me. And God says, I, I am. I'm completely, I'm completely sufficient. I am, I am completely present. I am completely sovereign in control. And that wasn't enough for Moses. He then says, goes from who are you to, well, who am I? In chapter 3, verse 13. If I come, who am I? Excuse me, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring out the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
And again, God answers him. But as we come to chapter 4, his doubt is still not appeased. And then he says, but they are not going to believe me. You see, he turns his gaze, verse 11, on self. Who am I that I'm to do this? And then God answers that. He looks to God and says, who are you that you are going to do this? And then God answers that. And then he looks around and says, what about these people that you have called me to deliver? The fear of man is one of the greatest hindrances in our spiritual life. Peer pressure doesn't stop when you get out of high school. Peer pressure doesn't stop when you graduate college. Peer pressure, it it continues into the workplace. It continues uh, throughout our, our years on earth. We cannot be fearing man and fearing God at the same time. And, God, and Moses says, God, what if they don't believe me? And again, God, as we talked about in his graciousness, says, okay, if that is your fear, I'm going to answer that fear as well. And he gives Moses signs to bring to the people. The, as we talked about last week, the rod, he throws it down, it becomes a snake, he runs away. And then God says, okay, I want you to exercise faith even in that sign. I want you to pick it up by the tail. How many of you would do that? No way. I mean, isn't it common sense that even if you are a snake handler or you're one of those wild guys on the, on the cable network, the animal channel, when you grab a snake, you at least want to do it by the back of its neck, right? So it doesn't bite. But God says, no, you pick it up by the tail. And then he says, you put your hand in your, in your uh, cloak and it comes out leprosy. Only God could do that. You put it back, and it's healed. And then he says, um, take water and pour it onto the ground, and it becomes blood. All of these signs are, are prophetic pictures of what God is going to do when Moses is in Egypt, what he's going to do in delivering his people. All of these things are signs. He's giving Moses a foretaste of the power that God has. Now listen, we can focus on on others all we want and say we believe the right things about God, but it was not until Moses reached out his hand, picked up the snake. It was not until Moses reached in his hand, saw leprosy, reached back, there was none. It was not until Moses scooped up the water, poured it out, saw blood. It was not until he did that that he experientially saw the power and sufficiency of God. You see, you can't be on the sidelines spiritually and just be trusting what your parents say about your faith and about who God is or what the pastor says or what your spouse says or, or any of those individuals and say, yeah, I know God. No, it's not until it is experientially real to you that you can really walk your everyday Christian life. 
I mean, it's not until you're living God's word that the Bible becomes exciting and fresh. Why? Because we are seeing God's word play out and be true in our lives. Because we're walking with him. Well, God answers all of Moses' fears about his focus of others. But again, it is not enough for Moses. And like we said last week, isn't it a blessing to see God's patience? Because we do this all the time. We cannot criticize Moses. But then in verses 10 to 17, the focus again, it moves to self. Moses' fourth objection is, now let's put the attention back on self. I am not eloquent, verse 10. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And really what this whole thing is, is it is a focus on self. Even his focus on others is really a concern for self, pride. But now he says, okay, all of my excuses are getting, are getting washed away. Let's get to the root of it. God, I just don't want to do it. In fact, what did we read in verse, uh, uh, let's see, verse um, 11. Who, Lord, who, uh, God says, who has made your mouth? Verse 12, he says, go, I will be with your mouth. And then verse 13, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. He should have just said that right up. It would have saved a lot of time, wouldn't it? You see, unbelief is always a heart issue. We can have every T crossed and every I dotted. But if our heart is not changed, it will never suffice. There will always be one more new doubt. There will always be one more new excuse there will always be another reason not to follow God if our heart's left unchanged. Can I ask you this morning, or have you focused on the outward elements of the Christian life? Does the Bible have a lot of commands about how God's people should live and conduct themselves? Yes, it does. But if you're always focused on these outward things, okay, well, I guess I got to do that. I guess I shouldn't do that. Okay, I guess God wants me to do this. I guess he doesn't want me to do that. Listen, you're missing the whole boat. Because living a life reflective of the grace of God, it only comes about when our hearts have been touched by the grace of God. Listen, uh, if you're a parent this morning and you are, you're dealing with your children, would you do yourself a favor and start looking at the heart issues and not the, just the externals? Because God is after the heart. Listen, you may be here today and you are so overcome with guilt because of all of the externals that, well, I, I know I should do this and I don't do that and I know I should do this and I don't do that and I do do this over here. Have you forgotten that out of the abundance of the heart, life springs forth? Could it be that you're so preoccupied trying to tidy the shelves that you have lost your heart relationship with God? 
that walking with God in the quietness of the moments, you're getting alone with him, you're, you're opening up the pages of scripture and saying, God, I want to speak to, I want you to speak into my life as I study your story. Not just looking for Bible verses to answer little questions of, well, what should I do today? What's God's will for this area of my life? Let me see if I can find a verse. No. Saying, God, I'm going to study your story because it encompasses my story. That is searching the scripture. But this morning, I want to conclude our look at chapter 4 by not just talking about hindrances to belief, but by looking at overcoming unbelief. And I want to look at several factors that we must keep in mind in overcoming unbelief. The first factor that I want to look at is in verses 18 to 20, and that factor is plain and simple obedience. Look at verse 18, after God answers all of his concerns, and he even stoops down in his graciousness and says, okay, I'm going to send you Aaron. He will be your mouthpiece. Verse 18 says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. You see, if we are going to obey God, if we are going to have a faith like James talks about, that it's not just a faith we say we have, but it's a faith that we live out, it will require obedience. And obedience is always a call out of comfort zones. Moses is brought to the point where he sees I must obey. Listen, if, you're, if you are today are sitting here, and, and man, there is no Holy Spirit conviction in your heart, even, that, even if you know that there are things that you're holding back, and, 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 and you know things aren't right, and there's no conviction there, there's no Holy Spirit prodding, then you really do have to question your faith. Because if we have the Spirit of God within us, we will make, because, uh, in the sinfulness of our heart, make all the excuses in the world, but God, mark it down. If you are a believer, He will bring you to the point because His Spirit is within you to where you say, God, I must obey. And God, you have brought me to the point where I even desire to obey. Because I know that I will not be happy else doing otherwise. You see, many times, God must break us down to the point where we give in. And that is his grace at work in our life. And it calls Moses out of his comfort zone. And Jethro, at the end of verse 18, says, go in peace. But this act of obedience not only calls us out of comfort zones, but it calls us to absolute faith. You see, verse 19 says, The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life 
are dead. Now notice that God did not say, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead back earlier in chapter 4 or in chapter 3. No doubt Moses would have thought in his mind, man, I had to flee for my life from Egypt. Now you want me to go back? But you see, in the Christian life, every step we take forward in submission to our Lord, God answers those concerns. And it is not until Moses steps out in faith that God relieves number one fear. Those people that are seeking your life are dead. This is my timing, Moses. This is my plan. This is my desire. Walk in the way I have showed you. But listen, when your hands are in your pocket and you're just sitting on the sidelines, don't expect to get further direction from God. Don't expect to to have God be working in your life when you are not willing to step out in obedience to him. You can't skip step one to get to step two with God. So God works out the circumstances. In verse 20 we see, it says, So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. You see, God is true to his promises. And Moses, again, he left Egypt, everything he was familiar with. He had to flee to Midian. And now that he's settled in Midian after 40 years, now he's got to leave everything again. This sounds real familiar, doesn't it? Don't you, can you think of the call of Abraham? He says, leave your family. In fact, Genesis 12, 5 says, Abraham took Sarah, his wife, Lot, his brother's sons, and all their possessions they had gathered that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Very similar language that is used here in verse 20. You see, God is calling Moses to forsake the lesser in order to gain the greater. And what makes us think that if God required faith throughout the pages of the Bible in the people that he has used, how are we to think that God is not going to require faith from us? Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. This is a call of obedience. Are you willing to obey your Lord and Savior this morning? But not only is this a call to obedience, overcoming unbelief not only requires obedience, but let me tell you, it brings confidence. Verse 21, we read, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now you may say, okay, at the beginning of verse 21, this seems like a real encouragement. God says, I have given you my signs, my wonders. And you are going to do those. Uh, You have my power. I've put that 
um, all the miracles that I have put in your power. But then all of a sudden at the bottom part of verse 21, all of a sudden he says this business about hardening Pharaoh's heart and he won't let the people go. I mean, how would you feel if you were Moses? Wait a minute, God. Here I am packing up all my belongings, going back to the land of Egypt. And you just said you're going to deliver the people, but now you're saying Pharaoh's not going to let the people go. You see, the confidence that the Christian walk gives us when we are truly walking by faith is a confidence in God, not a confidence in people or results. You see, it was God who would work the wonders, beginning of verse 21. But get this, it is also God who will provide the results. So Moses' job was not to have the whole game plan in front of him. It was to walk by faith in confidence of who God is, of what God can do, not having all the details laid out for him. Because as we will see as we continue in the book of Exodus, God has an even greater plan than just releasing the people from Egypt. Yes, that is the main goal of God's plan, but the greater encompassing plan is that His glory would shine to the nations. And that would start with His glory, His power being revealed to Egypt, the pagan nation that worshiped many gods, that they would see that there is only one true God. Are you willing to leave the results to God this morning? Could it be that your struggle in your life and your present situations is because you are wanting to put a confidence in God to do exactly what you want him to do? And you are not willing to put your confidence in God in saying, God, I'm putting my life in your, in your hands. I'm putting my confidence uh, in you to do whatever you see fit. You see, it's a confidence in God, not people or results. But then we read in verse 22, then you, uh, God continues, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You see, not only do we have a confidence in God, not people or results, but then secondly, uh, when we are walking by faith, we can have a confidence in the outward actions that God will produce. God will work. It may not be exactly how we've planned it. It may not be how we, we would like to lay everything out, but God will work. You see, what God is doing here in the story of the Exodus is verse 22 shows us that God is claiming his people. God said to Abraham, I am going to make a great nation of you. And you are going to go into Egypt for 400 years 
Uh, he says in Genesis 15 to Abraham. And then what happens? The people are there. And God says, now it is time for me to act upon my promises I gave hundreds of years ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I am going to now claim the people that I have formed. From the loins of a man and a woman who were so old they couldn't have kids. Now is the time I'm going to claim them. And he says here in family language, Israel is my firstborn son. See, God's here claiming his people. Do you realize here this morning that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you too have been claimed by God? Through a greater sacrifice than the Passover lamb, which was kind of that final act of God where uh, uh, Pharaoh says, get out, God can have his way. You have been made a child of God, a son, a daughter, because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You can walk by faith You can believe the promises of God because he has claimed you for himself. It is not an act where somehow you have merited God's love and God's acceptance and God's favor. No, he looked down upon us in all of our sin and he said, I am claiming those individuals. I I will call them to myself. And we are his. See, God is claiming his people. And how will he claim his people? He will redeem his people. He says, let my son go, verse 23, that they may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You see, God is redeeming them. He's he's bringing his people out of slavery. The the purchase, ultimately, of bringing his people out of slavery, not just physical, but spiritual, is the payment of the death of his son for sin. And God is making an exchange here in verse 23. It's an exchange of service. Verse 23, he says, let them go that they may serve me. What is God saying? He's saying, Now, my people are going to be under a new owner. They are no longer going to be serving Pharaoh. They are going to be serving me as a father, not a slave driver. And then secondly, there's an exchange we see here of sonship. This is so interesting, I think. It's, it's, uh, it's, just, it's so neat to see this, this parallel that God says in verse 23, he wants Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my son go. And then he says, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill your what? Son. We see here a comparison of sonship. Folks, don't ever think in your mind when we look that we are either sons of God or we are sons of the world. Don't ever think, you know what? 
I look at myself and there's just, there, there's no worth there. There, you know, uh, I, I don't have this, I don't have this, I don't have this. And I look at these people who don't follow God. They have this, they have this, they have this. And we make those comparisons and we forget our very identity that we are actually sons of God himself. Not sons of Egypt. That their day of judgment is coming. Their temporary time is between here, now, and when God sends judgment. And there's that brief time of prosperity. Are we living in light of our identity that we are sons and daughters of God? That when we read the New Testament and Paul says a simple word like beloved, I exhort you as the beloved, that that is me. I am actually loved by God. I don't have to, to crave the love and the acceptance of people because I have the love of one who is perfect. That, my friends, brings confidence. If we are going to overcome belief, unbelief in our lives, which, which is a lifelong struggle because we are human, we have the sinful flesh, we are going to have to step out in obedience and we are going to say, God, as I follow you, would you do a work of confidence in my heart to remember whose I am. But then thirdly, a third perspective that we must have in verses 24 to 26 is that of imperfection. We've already seen that Moses is not a perfect fellow, and we don't have a lot of time to unpack this this morning, but you may get, and maybe you've read through Exodus in the past, and you always get to verses 24 to 26, and you scratch your head, and you're like, what? What does this have to do with anything I've just read? <laughs> there actually is a point here. Let's just read it. So he's, he's going, okay? And, and even chronologically, this may be placed here strategically, though it's out of order in, the, in the, the, the order of events. But look at what verse 24 says. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? I mean, I don't, I don't think Moses was getting senile and all of a sudden he lost his train of thought and started going off on a, a tangent. <laughs> I don't mean to be sacrilegious about that either. <laughs> That's not what's happening. This is strategically placed here. And the point I want to bring across, first of all, is that God accepts us, and God not only recognizes, but he sees that we are imperfect people. That's why he had to send his son. 
We are not perfect as we seek to walk a life of faith. Because obviously something wrong is happening in verses 24 to 26. But in verse 24, they're they're on their way to Egypt. They stop at a lodging place. It says, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, in verse 24 to 26, um, there are only pronouns used, like him. In fact, uh, in verse 25, Moses, that's actually uh, the translators actually to help the readers put the word Moses in there. Um, His name is not mentioned in this passage. So many people say, what is going on here? Who is involved? Who is the him, the he? And I think the purpose that we see in verse 24 and that we have to realize in in, in looking at the imperfection of God's people is that relationship to God is bound by covenant. You see, when we look at the context of what's going on at the end of verse 23, God just finishes saying, if Pharaoh refuses to let him go, my people go, I will kill your firstborn son. And now we jump to verse 24 and we see that there is someone who is under the judgment of the Lord and the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. I think the him that is being referred to is not Moses, but it is Moses' son that we read of in chapter 3. Because of the context. Also, in Genesis 17, 14, God says to Abraham, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You see, for one reason or another, Moses' son was never circumcised. And here God is saying, I'm going to claim my people, and yet his own son has never been circumcised, which is a sign of God's covenant with his people. You know what this tells us on the practical level? That God is bound by covenant. And folks, we are under what is called the new covenant through Jesus' blood. And God relates to us through his covenant. And you know what that covenant says? It says that God has put his spirit in our hearts. It is him who is working in us to do and to will of his good pleasure. And he will never forsake us. Because of his son. But we also read in verse 25 and 26 that dedication to God is bound by covenant. You see, verse 25, it talks about Zipporah. She circumcises Moses' and Zipporah's son. And again, that word Moses um, uh, is put there, but um, we're not exactly sure if she is actually... um, throwing the the foreskin there at Moses' feet or if it is sort of a a circumcision rite that is being performed on the child. But the point here is that the blood protects. You see, all of chapter 4 has been foreshadowing what is to come later in the book of Exodus. And here, I really believe that we see a foreshadowing of the Passover experience in Exodus 12. That just as the blood was crucial, being put on the the, the doorposts 
for the death angel to pass over the house. They were protected by the blood. We see here the blood of circumcision here causes God to pass over this child. In Exodus 12, 13, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. You see, folks, it is the blood that brings us into covenant relationship with God. It's the blood of Jesus. Folks, it's not our good works. It's not how good of a son, a daughter, a parent. It's not how good of a Christian we are. It is that we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Folks, if you walk out the doors and your mind is not filled in thankfulness with what Jesus has accomplished for us so that we can live in that security and serve him under that security, then we haven't understood the passage today. Because when we are walking by faith, we are not only living a life of obedience, we are not only asking God to give us confidence in who we, who we are as his sons, but we are walking under the realization that we are imperfect people. Just as Moses did not circumcise his son, we too disobey God, but thanks be to him for the covenant blood that was poured out for us. Amen? Folks, we need to be teaching our children that from the time that they are in diapers. Because if we are not doing that, then they are going to live a life that's totally focused on the outward. And when they fail to measure up, woe is me, I'm a terrible person, I'm all of these things, and there is not a turning to Christ, thanking Him For the fact that though we are so imperfect, we are God's sons, God's daughters, because of the the blood that was poured out for us. And we renew our hope in Jesus, and we repent, and we go forward. And as we close this morning, there's just one final aspect that we when we are living a life of faith that happens, and that is ministry. Notice that this is last. A lot of times we have no close relationship to the Lord. We are not living in, in, in daily communion with, with the Lord. And yet we somehow jump to ministry as if that's the answer. No, ministry is an overflow of the heart. Ministry is is God's outworking of grace that I am able to give to others because I have received that grace in my heart and I'm living in that grace. And we go to verse 27, which really picks up after where verse 23 leaves off. It says, The Lord said to Aaron, just as God promised, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Folks, when we are living out of God's grace and out of faith, we are seeking to minister 
God brings into our life a God-centered encouragement. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall at Mount Sinai on the mountain, this grand family reunion in Moses in excitement, in fear, and probably with tears in his eyes is recounting all that God has showed him. Imagine Moses telling his brother Aaron his, uh, that I actually had to pick up a snake by the tail. <laughs> Imagine this. And they are encouraging one another. They're, they're fellowshipping. They hug. They kiss. They speak. And when we are serving together, the encouragement that that brings one another, it strengthens our faith. We not only see God-centered encouragement, but God-centered exhortation. In verses 29 to 31, as we can wrap up this chapter, it says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together, uh, gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. So they're obedient. They're back in Egypt now. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And he did the signs in the sight of the people. All of those signs that God gave Moses in the beginning of chapter 4. And look at what happens. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Folks, we see in this exhortation that, that Moses and Aaron give the people in verse 29 and 30, they simply proclaimed the message of God. They spoke all the words that God gave them. Folks, what words has God given us? He hasn't given us simply the words at the Christian bookstore of what people have written. Folks, the very words of God that he has given us is in the word. This is what we use to minister to hearts. Anything else is a quick Tylenol. It can take away your headache for a little bit, but it's not going to last. It is the word of God that must be proclaimed, not only from the pulpit, but, but to each other throughout the week, to ourselves as we are in God's word. And in this God-centered encouragement and exhortation, we see also that Moses and Aaron provide the assurance of God's intimate care. He knew their situation, verse 31 says. He had visited the people of Israel. That has the idea that he was attentive to what was going on to them. And he was concerned. But folks, what I really want to draw our attention to as we close is those last few words. That last sentence. They bowed their heads and worshiped. Folks, in this exhortation, Moses and Aaron, through the message of God, the word of God, they incited worship among the people. Can I ask you, how long do you think it was since those Israelites truly worshiped God, that they bowed their head in dependency and in just pure gratefulness and worship to God? I mean, we've already read how overcome they were with the slavery that they were under. Now, let me ask you, did the slavery go away at that moment? No. What happened that changed and brought worship to their hearts? 
they were overcome with something greater than what they were currently under. Folks, you may say, I am going through such a dry spell in my Christian life. I mean, I'm even questioning whether all of this stuff that, that in, in God's word is even true. Can I ask you when the last time, like, these children, like the children of Israel here, though they were under all of this, these problems, when was the last time you stopped, you heard the truth of God's message, and you were overcome with his amazing grace? And that took you from the heaviness of your circumstances to the greatness of your God, and you were overcome with something far greater than what you were currently under. That is what produces zeal in the Christian life. That is what produces a walk of faith. Only God can rescue and redeem. Let's pray. As we close today, can I ask you, will you believe? Will you walk by faith and not by sight? It could be that the trials that you are under this morning, the hardness of your heart, it seems impenetrable. Your unbelief seems so great. But folks, there is one who is greater. Will you turn to him today? Will you bow your heads in worship?